I want to start out in this sermon this morning with a modest defense, both of sequential verse-by-verse expository preaching and of thinking with depth and I would say determination about all things theological. Now, the reason I do that is because this sermon is going to be overtly theological this morning. Not as though other sermons aren't, but this one especially so because I want to challenge you to put your thinking cap on, all right? Because I want to lift the veil, as Scripture does, in order to give us a sense of the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not merely to us, but to each other. And that's going to take some thinking for us. Preaching, as we do the actual words of the Bible writers through the ultimate author himself, the Lord God, the Lord God of the universe, is absolutely critical, my friends, if we're going to understand this God and the world he's made. And if we're going to rightly understand the Bible words as they are given to us on the page, in their various contexts, of course, we must think theologically. I know that's not particularly popular. There are going to be pulpits, many pulpits in our land, to say nothing of the pulpits around the world, in which hardly any theology will be spoken about. Sad to say. Well, this pulpit is not going to be one of those, both regularly and particularly today, because I want to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity in relation both to the divine persons of the Godhead themselves and, of course, their relation to us as believers. And that's what John chapter 14 does. And the reason I'm bringing this up to you is because I'm going to dive into John 14, so you can turn there if you wish. I'm going to dive into John 14 from an expositional standpoint, as we normally do. But I want to challenge all of us with this passage from John 14 in our minds to also think theologically about what we're studying. This is incredibly important. And frankly, as I've alluded to already, evangelicalism as a whole is often not very patient in listening to Bible exposition. Not very patient at all. It takes a great deal of time and effort at thinking through the various facets or elements of our faith and to think through them theologically takes our careful listening to be someone who is a listener to the faithful preaching of the word of God and to try hard to understand very important theological concepts which have very definite practical benefits for all of us for our spiritual growth and our maturity. I want to give you an example. I'm going to quote from maybe three or four guys this morning because I think you need to hear from them and about what they're saying. And the first is Fred Sanders. Fred Sanders is the author of this book. I've even brought it to the pulpit because I can show you this book. It's called The Deep Things of God, How the Trinity Changes Everything. I love the subtitle especially. Fred Sanders in this book speaks about this sort of anemic idea of evangelicalism at not thinking deeply about God and therefore being impoverished 
as the evangelical church is today. Here's what he says. Anybody who stays on the surface of contemporary evangelical Christianity is unlikely to encounter profound Trinitarianism, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, either in teaching or in spirituality. Though most of this book will be about what evangelical churches do well, perhaps it's best to start by admitting two problems that any observer could see. First, evangelicals are not currently famous for their Trinitarian theology. Second, the evangelical movement is bedeviled by a theological and spiritual shallowness. I think he's absolutely right. He goes on to say, first, there is evangelical coldness toward the Trinity. Forgetting where our evangelical commitments and practices originated, our churches are in constant danger of forgetting why we do any of the things we do. Our beliefs and practices all presuppose the Trinity. But that presupposition has for too long been left unexpressed, tacit rather than explicit, and taken for granted rather than celebrated and taught. In every area of evangelical existence, our tacit Trinitarianism must be coaxed out, articulated, and confessed. We may be, he says, the most consistently Trinitarian Christians in the world, evangelicals, but it does us little good if we continue to be radically Trinitarian without knowing it. We are at risk of denying in our words and actions the reality that our lives are based on. We are at risk of lapsing into sub-Trinitarian practices and beliefs, of behaving as if we serve a merely unipersonal deity rather than the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit of the Bible. We are at risk, he says, of staying in the shallows when God calls us to the deep things. The more we explore and understand the depth of God's commitment to salvation, the more, we have, we, the more we have to come to grips with the triunity of the one God. The deeper we dig into the gospel, the deeper we go into the mystery of the Trinity. Further, he says in a later section of the book, and speaking again of this shallowness, he says, usually evangelicals get only a few steps down the road of theological reflection before they begin asking for reassurances that the trip is going to be worthwhile. They often express this in the curt question, is this necessary for salvation? They often express that, and he goes on to say, bad motives may lurk behind such a question, short-sighted pragmatism, intellectual laziness, a desire to reduce everything in Christianity to the bare minimum of experiential and preferably emotional accessibility. There's no use denying that these traits do exist in evangelical churches, and formerly, the question itself is dismayingly similar to these questions. Will this be on the test? And can I get to heaven without thinking about this? And that's so true. We want just the bare minimums. Just, just, just give me the facts, man. That's all I want. Just tell me the, the bare minimum that I have to know to get to heaven, and I'll be okay, and I don't have to think deeply about these things. And this book is tremendous. I would say in, in my reading repertoire, it's now in my top ten, if not my top five, of books that I have really, really been in, impacted by. 
And I want us, beloved, to, to resist the temptation to want to get quick fix answers about our faith and doctrine. Choosing not to sit, not to read, not to think about these most important subjects and most importantly of all, the doctrine of the Trinity. So with that in mind, turn in your Bibles to John 14. John chapter 14. For this is where, in John 14, specifically in verses 9, 10, and 11, we find what we might call the inner inner Trinitarian indwelling of Jesus and the Father. And it is marvelous truth. You remember I told you last time, two weeks ago, that Peter was confused, that Thomas was confused about some of the things that Jesus was teaching them and even teaching them by way of comforting them. And they didn't understand what he was thinking or saying, at least in toto. And that's to be understood. They were dull of hearing. They lacked at times faith to understand They didn't think, they're like all of us, about all that Jesus was saying, all that Jesus was teaching, and they needed also the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that later. They needed the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the illumination of the Holy Spirit to grasp the things that Jesus was teaching them. And so after Peter and after Thomas, we come to Philip in John 14, 8. And Philip is hearing Jesus tell Thomas, that to know Jesus is both to have known and to have seen the Father. And still yet, Philip says in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And how does Jesus answer this statement of Philip? Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. If you remember, I teased you with, a question without answering it in that last message, which was about how to understand Jesus' very striking words. Do you see that there are three times in verses 9, 10, and 11 where Jesus is saying something about being in the Father and the Father being in him? You see that in verse 10? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And then he says it again at the, at the latter part of verse 10, the Father who dwells in me. And then he says it again in verse 11, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. He's answering Philip's question about showing the Father to the disciples. And Jesus says three different times in three profoundly significant ways, I'm showing you the Father. Look look back at at verse 9. What he's telling Philip is something like this, The Son of God shows who the heavenly Father is. Their equality, their purpose. Jesus, in his uniqueness as a distinct person, is yet also showing the Father, his life, his love, his ways, his purposes, his mission, his plan to send the Lord Jesus to the earth. And 
the Father and Jesus sending the Holy Spirit to the earth so that we could be shown not simply our own salvation, but also the relationship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to each other. And not just to us, but to each other. So when he says in verse 9, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. One of the missions of Jesus, or a part of the mission of Jesus, is that he is showing us who the Heavenly Father is. That's immense. That's profound. And then he says, secondly, the Son of God and the Father are in one another. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. The Father dwells in me. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. We're going to talk about that. And then thirdly, in verse 11, he even says that the Father's works are in the Son's works. He even starts out by saying, the words that I say. So you could even add it this way. You could say, the Father is manifesting himself in both the words and the works of Jesus. And you remember last time, I also took you to several passages in the Gospel of John, which also use this kind of similar language. What I mentioned a moment ago, a moment ago this inner Trinitarian indwelling. And I think what Jesus is doing here is profoundly communicating very high Christology, the doctrine of Christ. And what he's doing, my friends, is that he's, he's rolling back the curtain. He's, he's, he's removing the veil for a moment, and he's showing behind the veil the relationship of the first two members of the Godhead. And he reveals to Peter and to Thomas and to Philip and the other disciples who are listening some of the facets, the, the profound, marvelous facets of the inner Trinitarian nature of the relationship between the Father and the Son. And later, in verse 15, we'll learn about the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus teaches them and as we are taught this morning, I want you to notice this relational description which Jesus teaches, not only about his own uniqueness as God the Son, but also about his union as the Son of God. Uniqueness and union. There's another very helpful volume by Richard Bauckham in his book, Gospel of Glory, Major Themes in Johannine Theology. Don't let the, the title... Uh, challenge you. What he's simply saying is there are some major themes in John's gospel. And he relates chapter by chapter what some of these themes are. And he begins to talk about this relationship within the Trinity of the Father and the Son. And this is what he says, very, very interesting and compelling words. He says, this, this inner Trinitarian indwelling that I've called, he coins a word. He says it's their in one anotherness. They're in one anotherness. And this is what he says. He talks about the in one anotherness as denoting a personal and an intimate relationship now, using the spatial image in, right? You can't, you can't get any closer. You can't get any more intimate than the idea of being in something or in someone. And this is what he says. This is really, really helpful. It's helpful to me. He says, as the love between the Father and Son overflows into the world. The in-one-anotherness of the Father and the Son becomes the source of the in-one-anotherness of Jesus and the believer. 
In other words, what he's driving at is if you and I expect to have a love from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to us, then we have to understand first and foremost, and we have to think, and we have to think hard about this, that it's not just for us that we are being loved, but it is also because and by virtue the love that the Father has for the Son and the love that the Son has for the Father and the love that they have for each other through the love of the Holy Spirit who unites all of them together. And that's first base. That's first place. That's where we need to go when we think about our salvation. We can get, you see, so wrapped up in the idea of my salvation, or we can even be uh, uh, so courteous to others to even think about us, the body of Christ, and, and the local expression of how we are to love one another. But we're not grasping what we're seeing here unless we understand that that love that we have for God related to our own salvation and that love that we have for others in the body of Christ is dependent upon and flows out from the love of the Father to the Son and the love of the Son to the Father and the love of the Father to the Spirit and the Spirit to the Father and to Jesus. He says the greater sense of these truths is that from the loving communion between the Father and the Son flows the love which Jesus loved his disciples. A love that enables them to enjoy an intimate in one another relationship with Jesus and the Father. And it is from this overflowing of divine love into the world that the oneness of believers among themselves stems. He's right about that. We don't really know, and we're not really loving enough, and we're really not loving accurately, and we're really not loving powerfully, not only each other, but even God, unless we begin to understand the love relationship between the persons of the Godhead. And it is an amazing, amazing love. I want you to see this from John's Gospel. Turn to John chapter 10. You're reading along, as I do in our Bibles, especially in the Gospel of John, and we hear Jesus teaching, and he teaches us about ourselves, and he teaches about those who are resistant to him, and all of that's true in the Gospel of John. But then he sort of, again, at times, just removes the curtain a little bit, and he tells us, that is the world, about his relationship with his heavenly Father. And this is what he says in John chapter 10, verse 30. You know it well, of course. I and the Father are what? One. That's an important word. Verse 33. The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself what? God. You see, they understood what he meant when he said, I and the Father are one. There's this relationship that I possess with the Father, a oneness, speaking, of course, of his uniqueness with the Father and also his union with the Father. And then look at verse 38. He says, but if I do them, then do not believe me, these works of my Father. Even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is what? In me, and I am in the Father. And this was, this was language that I'm, I'm absolutely sure 
that these unbelieving Jews particularly would simply have not understood. What do you mean that you're in the Father? And if you mean something other than what we assume you mean, then aren't we? We're sons of Abraham. And Jesus is saying something far more than that. It's this in one anotherness with the Father that he's talking about. Look at chapter 14, verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? There's a union that we share together and that they shared together from all eternity. There's always been the Heavenly Father and there has always been the Divine Son of God. They've always been in existence. Jesus was always the Son, and He was always in the Father, and the Father was always in Him. That's, that's Jesus and His in one anotherness with the Father. What about Jesus and His in one anotherness with believers? Look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6. It's, it's not just true of who they are in relation to each other, but it's true in relation to that relationship with us. In John chapter 6, verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh. Remember he talks about drinking his blood and eating his flesh. The idea of imbibing uh, his crucifixion, his work on the cross. And he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides where? In me and I in him. Using that that sort of metaphorical spatial language to talk about this personal intimacy that is so deep, that is so profound that we can be said as believers to be in Jesus. Now, I know Paul says to be in Christ, and he's not contradictory to anything John says, but it is something theologically different. What Jesus is talking about here is you are in me by virtue of my being in the Father and the Father being in me. Look at John chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. This is, this is spread throughout the gospel of John. John chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. That, that knowledge relationship, that knowledge base is the same as being in Jesus, being in the Father, the Father being in Jesus and the Father being in us. Look at John chapter 14, verse 17. This is even now bringing in the person of the Spirit who is God. Verse 17, Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, you know Him, true believers, for He what? Dwells with you and will be what? In you. You see that language there? This is, this is the profundity of the idea that from eternity past, there was an in-one-another relationship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in such a way that when the, the veil is removed and we're seeing Jesus even talk about that, almost like in a conversation, telling the world about His relationship with the Father. The Holy Spirit talking about the relationship of being in 
the Trinity. It's so amazing. And, and, and then you can begin to see Jesus and the Father, and of course even the Holy Spirit, as they come to us now in salvation, and they talk to us about being in them. Look at chapter 14, verse 19. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, Jesus talking, but you will see me, because I live, you will also live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. You see how he's tying it all together now? This in one anotherness? I'm in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. This is, this is amazing. This is stunning. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered Judas, not Iscariot. He's now the fourth guy in the act. You had Peter, you have Thomas, you have Philip, and now you have Judas. And he said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That's the differentiation between Christians and non-Christians, between those who receive and those who reject. And then he says this, and my father will love him And we, that is the Father and me, we will come to Him and make our home with them. An abiding presence. And in one another relationship. Look at chapter 15. He talks about this abiding, this relationship, being being in Jesus. Chapter 15, verse 4. Abide in me, Jesus says, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Oh, this is so marvelous. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified. Notice how he keeps going back to his relationship with the Father. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And if that's not enough, look at chapter 17, verse 11. This this is almost like Jesus is giving them previews in chapter 14, a little bit in chapter 15, and then in chapter 17, he just just takes the veil and he just throws it open fully and he talks to the Father in his high priestly prayer to the Father in incredible ways. And you and I get to see it. You and I get to hear Jesus praying. No wonder his disciples came and said, teach us how to pray. he's lifting the veil and showing us these marvelous things. He says in verse 11, for instance, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which means in every aspect of your character. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. What a in-one-anotherness we're talking about. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, I'm not just asking for these apostles to be these disciples, but every disciple of those disciples in the history of 
mankind, verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Marvelous. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. See, they are perfectly one, and since we're sinners, but now we're in Christ, we're in Jesus, and we're in the Father, the, the whole process of our sanctification, our growth in grace, is so that we may be fully matured, going to that perfect place with a perfect condition so that we could be perfectly in them fully matured. What a concept. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You can't know the love of the Father to the Son unless you know how much Scripture speaks of the Father's love for the Son. And when you're impacted by that, and when you realize the Father loves the Son perfectly they are in perfect harmony they are in perfect joy they have a perfect will it is completely unified and then you say and that's what we're working toward that's the unity we should have that's the love we should have you see when you begin thinking not just of your own life and your own salvation and even this local church and even the body of Christ in general and you begin to say the whole plan the whole purpose is for us to see the theater of God's glory and the love that the Father has for the Son. I mean before we can talk about our own salvation including the very critical concepts of the Father initiating the salvation that we enjoy and of the Son actually following through with the mission and plan of God the Father to initiate that salvation by His death on the cross and by His resurrection and the Holy Spirit illumining our minds and regenerating our hearts so that we would in fact be saved and respond to the message of the truth. All of that is so true. All of that is right. But before our salvation ever came to be, and if it had never come to be, there would be a love of the Father to the Son to the Spirit to the Father, to the Son. It would always and forever be there because it's from eternity and it will go on throughout all eternity. And that's a miracle of grand proportions so that we can see how we are to love and to see how far our love falls even toward each other. Fred Sanders One of the most powerful features of the Trinitarianism of the New Testament is that it is revealed to us largely in the conversation between the Father and the Son. The hearers of the New Testament get to listen in on the prayers of Jesus the Son to his God and Father. All through his ministry, he converses with the Father in a way that prompts his disciples to ask him for instruction in prayer. Even in the darkest darkness of the cross itself, the Son keeps up an intimate running dialogue with the Father. 
Jesus is confident that his prayers are heard and that the Father is with him. And in a few spectacular instances of a voice speaking from heaven, we get to hear the Father declaring his attitude toward his beloved Son. All this inner Trinitarian conversation is intentionally held in public for our instruction. What they said to and about one another for us to overhear is not only a solid foundation for the doctrine of the Trinity, but it is also a marvelous invitation to us to be included in that conversation. I mean, what grace! What mercy that you and I have our eyes opened and our ears unplugged so that the veil can be removed and you and I can see and hear the very interrelationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and their love and their relationship to each other. He says we can turn to the Father's testimony about the Son. When the Father expresses His love for the Son, He he cannot possibly be doing it out of self-interest or because He has something to gain. Where could we ever find a more objective point of view about who Jesus is? And of course, the Son's testimony about the Father is just as valuable to us. We hear all this through the words of Scripture brought home to us by the Holy Spirit who inspired them. When we hear Father, Son, and Holy Spirit bear witness to each other in this manner, we are overhearing the doctrine of the Trinity from three privileged insiders and learning about nothing less than the inner life of God. As one book title suggests, and it's a good one, the the life of God in the soul of man. Can you you imagine the thought that God has given us the privilege, the opportunity to experience His divine life? Think about that, my friends. The life of God in your soul. And in the pages of the New Testament, particularly in John's Gospel, the curtain is pulled back and you and I, as now ourselves privileged insiders, can hear the discussion of the Father and the Son toward each other. What a thing that unbelievers will never know, never experience, and never see that love, and never experience that love. You see now how you must understand, first and foremost, the relationship of the Trinity to each other before you can truly understand the significance of God's love for you. You see, we get so caught up, and it's, it's, it's a... It's an admirable idea in some ways, but it's a shallowness in others. I just care about what Jesus did for me. I'm just all about what Jesus did for me. Well, it's good for you. And it's good for others to know about your testimony and to know about your idea of even your desire to love them. But the greatest, the highest, when the veil is removed, it's the idea of you and me thinking the deep things of God and finding out this relationship that the Father has with the Son in the unity of the Spirit that you and I marvel at because it's far far beyond our ability to grasp. It's far beyond our ability to fully comprehend. We just get a little bit of a glimpse here and there and when we see it, when we read about it, it is so wonderful. Take for instance, go back to John chapter 13. You see in verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, 
you also are to love one another. Well, how did he love us as the outflow of his love for the Father? That's how he did it. It was the Father's love that gave Jesus that sense of the love that he could have outflowing from that love of the Father to us. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. What kind of love? Here's what Don Carson says. It's not just the standard is Christ and his love. More, it is a command designed to reflect the relationship of love that exists between the Father and the Son. Designed to bring about amongst the members of the nascent messianic community, the followers of Jesus, the kind of unity that characterizes Jesus and the Father. That's the love we're talking about. You say, how can I love my brothers and sisters in Christ more readily, more easily, more profoundly? How can I do that? Then just study the love Jesus has for the Father. Just study his all-consuming love. And you say, I, I can't match that. I'm a sinner saved by grace, but I can't match that. Well, then why are these passages here? Why are they listed for us? Why are they written down for us? Why is it that when Peter struggles and Thomas struggles and Philip struggles, and even now Judas, not Iscariot, struggles, and they keep asking Jesus, help us, comfort us, give us a word, teach us so that we, we will not be troubled. And he says, let me, let me tell you. Philip, if, if, if you're asking for the Father, I've shown you the Father. If you're asking about love, if you're asking me about how to love one another, it's not just as Jesus loved you, it's how Jesus loved you and how Jesus loved the Father. That's how you're changed. That's how you're profoundly impacted with the gospel because you're, you're seeing behind the curtain the actual love from eternity past that the Father has for the Son and that the Son has for the Father. And when you look at that kind of love, you understand then in the first part of John 13 when Jesus says about his own disciples, Father, I want you to know I have loved them to the end. Why? Because the Father loves the Son perfectly. That's the basis That's the platform from which all of our love should be. And that's why John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and we will make our home with them so that they can see our love, so they can can follow our love, so that they can pattern their love after the pattern that the father and the son and the unity of the spirit express. I think there's even some more here in verses 10 and 11 of John 14. When he says, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, it sort of gets at the co-equal relationship between the Father and the Son, a mutual indwelling. Now, two distinct persons, don't get me wrong, and yet a spiritual oneness and a perfect unity of purpose and of their love for one another. And then, in the latter part of verse 10, the Father who dwells in me does his works. That gets at the work of the Father in and through the person of the Son based upon the incarnation of the Son and the Son's desire to be obedient and submissive to his Father. So if you're talking about Jesus and this equal, co-equal relationship with the Father, the Father's in me, I'm in the Father. If you want to talk about the Son's submission to the Father, his obedience to the Father, the Father does his works through me. 
That's why it's not a problem in John's gospel, even though so many people stumble over it because they don't have eyes to see, when Jesus speaks of his co-equality with the Father, and then he goes on and says, but I do nothing except what the Father tells me to do. And people trip over that and say, how can those two things be equal? How can those two things be at one and the same time true? Well, they are because you're looking at two different angles. You're looking through the prism of the Father and His co-equality with the Son and their co-equal love and their manifestation of grace to the world as God, even God in human flesh. And then you have Jesus, obedient, submissive, responding to the Father's will, never not responding to the Father's will because He is the Son of God. He has always been the Son of God and He shall always be the Son of God. Always in that love relationship. Always responding. Perfectly. And do you know what verse 11 calls us to do about these truths? Notice twice in verse 11. Believe. Believe in this. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. He says, you want to be comforted, Peter, Thomas, Philip, Judas? You want to be comforted? Be comforted by this. Look at my relationship to the Father. I've manifested him to you. I've shown you who he is. He's loved me. And I've loved you to the end. And you know, the Bible tells us very, very simply, they didn't get it. And some of us may be saying to ourselves, you know, it's been sort of heavy this morning, you know. I'm not sure I get it. And you know what the Gospel of John says? It says that Jesus will be glorified, and when he's glorified, they'll get it. And the book of John says that when Jesus goes on that cross and then when he's raised from the dead, it says they're going to get it. And it says in the Gospel of John that when after the fact and after his resurrection and undoubtedly after his ascension and then when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, it says they remembered the Holy Scriptures and they got it. And when the Holy Spirit did come upon them, it says they understood. And it says in Luke 24, that Jesus opened their eyes so that they could understand. And now we're back where mortals live, right? Okay, all right. I mean, this is tough. This is theological. This is difficult to understand. I'm not sure I know all this in one anotherness, and that sort of uh, fries my brain. But I'm telling you, in verse 11 of John 14, it says, believe. Believe that there is a love relationship inner trinitarily and you and I will be comforted by such truth one final quote and we're done now listen very very carefully and I want you to ponder on this I, I sent this out as a text to my own children and said read reread 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 this every day the relation of the father this is a long-ago preacher, Adolphe Monod, 1800s, 1802 to 1856 he lived. This is what he said about the deep things. The relation of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to man corresponds to a relationship in God between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the love which is poured out to save us is the expression of that love which has dwelt eternally in the bosom of God. Then he says, ah, the doctrine then becomes for us so touching and profound. 
There we find the basis of the gospel and those who reject it as speculative and purely theological doctrine have therefore never understood the least thing about it. It is the strength of our hearts. It is the joy of our souls. It is the life of our life. It is the very foundation of revealed truth. You don't get any deeper in the deep things of God than understanding the relationship, especially the relationship of love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But when you grab a hold of that truth and when it begins to seep down in the deep recesses of your soul, you say, give me more of the deep things of God and I shall live a stable growing, mature Christian life. And when the, when the floods come and when the rains beat up against that house, it is strong for it is founded upon the rock. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the deep things of God. It is true that understanding this inner Trinitarian relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we've just scratched the surface, invigorates and changes and challenges everything so that we would truly understand even our adoption as sons. Thank you for challenging us to think and to think deeply and profoundly, even for a few moments, so that we are enveloped in the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not just to us. And we thank you for that, but for each other, which shows us from which our own love for others stems. May we continue to grow in our understanding. And when we're throwing our own pity party about life, when we are struggling, when we are disappointed, discouraged, even vexed about this or that thing in our lives, let us go back to the love of God manifested in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not just to us, but of them to each other. Pray these things through Christ to you, Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now let's sing.